I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and no, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. All right, what's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sayer Payne for War Stories, joined today by my father-in-law, Doug Mater. Thanks for making the time and being flexible with the schedule in here. Well, I'm retired, so I got all kinds of time. When you're not watching our daughter, so that's uh, the important task later today, I think. Yeah, yeah. So my wife might be on the retrieving uh, end of it for today, but we'll see how this goes in the next hour and a half, if less. Well, I'm, um, I'm a little more nervous about this one than any others because I've got pressure from Megan to get it right. And she wants to hear things about your background that she hadn't heard before. And I don't know how we're going to get there. So um, full disclosure, a little nervous about this one, but I'm excited to get into uh, Vietnam and your time in the Navy there. It's not at baseline. I tend to spend more time Maybe I'm just more familiar with the Army and Marines. Um, yeah, I'm excited to get into that. Well, you know, I kind of uh, noticed that when I listened to your uh, podcast uh, with uh, Zach Morris, and he was talking about uh, his, uh, was it his grandfather? That was mm -hmm. a quartermaster mm -hmm. uh, aboard ship. And <clears throat> quartermaster means a whole different thing for uh, uh, Army and Navy. But uh, talking about the, the quartermaster and all the different uh, uh, definitions, and it's, it's also kind of amazing to think about uh, the ranks and uh, with uh, enlisted as well as the uh, uh, officers and uh, the titles and everything, uh, uh, first lieutenant, second lieutenant, and all that. And we have uh, uh, ensigns and uh, lieutenant JG and then lieutenant, which is like a captain. And mm -hmm. uh, on up, so you know it's confusing. I guess that's uh, one of the important things about uh, being the Navy, as opposed to a lot of the the other services, is that uh, uh, the Navy has a whole different terminology about a lot of things, mm -hmm. and it's a whole different lifestyle as well. When you look at uh, life at sea, as opposed to uh, uh, being on the ground, and uh, uh, you know just a whole different life. Uh, uh, experience uh people would say to me uh, boy i don't know how i could stand being out at sea like that and i would tell them well it's really not that bad because you're always within six miles from land the problem is it's straight down so uh it's a little bit you're not you don't really want to go down there but it's uh uh being at sea is really uh quite a uh enjoyable and uh, uh quite a great uh, experience to be part of you were talking about some of the different terminology. Is that, did you have an idea of some of that when you were going in? Because if I'm not mistaken, your, your dad was in the Navy. Yeah. And going back to uh, Zach Morris's book uh, about the uh, LCIs, uh, my dad served on an LST. And so that's a landing ship tank. And so they would uh, transport the tanks for the landings uh, um, uh, during World War II. Uh, he was primarily in the South Pacific, uh, down in um, New Zealand, and uh, before, just before he got out, well, the, the war ended, and they were uh, scheduled to be heading up to uh, uh, Japan uh, for the major uh, landing. So he would have been involved in uh, some very serious uh, activity if they would have uh, invaded Japan and had to do all that. But uh, he told me a lot about uh, being aboard ship and uh, a little bit about what life was uh, like on the ship. <clears throat> and I think he, uh, he really convinced me that if I ever went into the military, that uh, the Navy would be a, a good place to be because you always have uh, a clean rack to sleep in. Uh, I mean, you did. You do your laundry all the time. And uh, you always had three square meals, if not mm -hmm. more. So the life uh, aboard ship in that way was uh, uh, pretty good. And sometimes uh, 
maybe a little luxurious because if you went to for breakfast, for example, you could order yourself uh, a six egg omelet and uh, have all the sides that go along with it. So you always had uh, plenty to eat and uh, it, it was good as far as that goes. Plus, I think the like, forget the war aspect for a second. The I what I find cool just being an army guy myself is just the I think the out to sea part or just the locations in general, meaning you're related, you're going to the ports because army, air force, we've got some real terrible locations just in the middle of nowhere and just nothing around. And I always thought that that was a lot of people I talked to that were Navy, they always seem to have some sort of cool story around. Um, just the physical location where where they were like we were both at Fort Campbell okay it's Tennessee nothing wrong with it it's just it's not exciting I don't think at least cornfields maybe because I grew up in a similar looking area whereas from the Midwest the Navy is like you're just you're traveling the world like firsthand in a way wasn't that their motto for a while see the world yeah there you go and uh, that was uh, really what what we did uh, I was uh, primarily uh, uh, in the Pacific Ocean in the Seventh Fleet, and uh, we uh, we were always going somewhere. And that was uh, uh, the neat thing about it is uh, you were always headed somewhere, and you're not stationary in one uh, one place. We visited uh, several ports, which were uh, uh, sometimes exotic. Uh, <clears throat> I really, uh, I was home ported in uh, Pearl Harbor, which was, uh, it was paradise, mm. to tell you the truth. Yeah. Hawaii is, is beautiful. And, uh, <clears throat> but we uh, traveled over to Southeast Asia, which, you know, isn't, wasn't that beautiful. But uh, we went to Hong Kong, went to Japan and uh, uh, Philippines and, uh, and did a lot of stops as we went across. So got to see parts of the world that I never would have seen uh, before. So that was uh, really enjoyable and it was really uh, fantastic to deal with as a 19, 20 year old because uh, boy, you're out there on your own and uh, uh, you just, uh, you really didn't have a lot of responsibility. Being uh, uh, an enlisted person as I was, you know, I didn't have uh, uh, a big job that I had to uh, uh, be trained at or whatever. I just, uh, I was out there and just enjoyed the time that we were there. And I do have to say that I enjoyed it. Uh, I was talking to a fellow this morning. We have uh, uh, a group of men that get together at our church and uh, uh, he was uh, in the Air Force and we were talking about our time in the, in the service. And he says, you know, it was the best thing that, ever, that I ever did, but I don't wanna ever do it again. And yeah. I've said that many times. It was my, the best experience for me but I don't want to go back. I don't want to do it again. Being 19, 20 years old, you know, it was an adventure. And mm -hmm. uh, you're invincible. You don't have to, you don't worry about, uh, you know, is the ship going to go down? Uh, is something bad going to happen? You just were there and you were doing what you, what you had to do. So uh, it, it, was, it was an adventure. What was the, what time period are we talking well, I, I'll give you a little bit of a rundown as far as uh, how I went into the Navy. And uh, I joined in 1970, uh, right out of high school. And what I uh, joined was uh, uh, the Naval Reserve. And so I became uh, what they called a two by four uh, sailor, where I did two years of active duty and uh, four years of uh, uh, reserve drilling. Sure. <laughs> so we did those four years back home, but the other two years were uh, wherever you ended up being uh, stationed. So I, uh, I was, it was during the draft, 1970, that was still going on. <clears throat> Many, I had several friends that were drafted and, um, but they ended up in Germany. Um, none of my close friends ended up uh, in combat in Vietnam. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of wondering, what do I want to do? Uh, do I want to wait for the draft to see what happens? Or should I be proactive and uh, go ahead and <clears throat> join one of the branches? I, uh, my mother was very concerned that I was going to get drafted. <clears throat> and you know how mothers are, they want to uh, 
put their arms and their wings around uh, their children, especially their only son. <clears throat> so she convinced me that, uh, why don't you join the Naval Reserve? Because she had heard about this two by four program. So myself and a buddy of mine, uh, we uh, looked into it. And uh, so we ended up deciding to go in together uh, and uh, <clears throat> join the Naval Reserve. Again, listening to my dad, you know, a clean rack and three square meals and uh, uh, not a bad lifestyle. So I uh, went down and uh, joined up. I probably could have avoided all that because I joined up before my draft number came up. And my draft number for that year was, uh, I think it was 274. So I would never have come close to being drafted. <clears throat> but uh, I think it was meant to be that um, I had, I needed to go into the service. And uh, uh, like I said before, it was uh, an experience I don't want to repeat, but it was an experience that I would never trade uh, because uh, it taught me how to grow. It, it made me grow up. It made me become a man uh, and be responsible for myself. And uh, some of the things uh, that I experienced, uh, boy, I will just, I would never want to, to lose those things because uh, uh, like I said, life at sea is really a lot different than uh, uh, life on the land. And uh, we uh, just had a lot of great, great and interesting experiences as we went along. So in 1973, I, <clears throat> or 1970, I joined the, the reserves, then uh, had one year of uh, drills uh, back at my uh, station, which was about 50 miles from my hometown. And then uh, in September of 71, uh, I got my orders that uh, uh, I was being sent out to join the fleet and uh, didn't know exactly where I was going to go, uh, but uh, went to uh, Treasure Island out in uh, California, uh, San Francisco. And uh, before you went, uh, they gave you a dream sheet as far as what would be some good ideas, what you would you like to do as far as uh, where would you like to be stationed? And uh, sure enough, you know, Pearl Harbor was right up there on the list. And I thought, boy, Hawaii sounds really nice. And so that was my number one choice. But then I really wasn't thinking that clearly because being in uh, uh, Pearl Harbor, then you were just one step away from um, being overseas in Vietnam. Sure. <clears throat> and sure enough, you know, that's what happened with our ship. We ended up being... Uh, uh, deployed on two Westpac cruises. That's what they call them. When you were <clears throat> heading out from uh, the Western fleet, uh, it was a Westpac cruise. So we were in the seventh fleet. And uh, when you were going to the far east, uh, that was Westpac. If you were uh, on the east coast uh, and you went out on one of your cruises, it would be a med cruise heading towards the Mediterranean in that uh, area down around there. So we did two Westpac cruises, and uh, the first one was uh, very active uh, because that's when we uh, got involved with a lot of uh, <clears throat> naval uh, gunfire support. And um, that's where I had a lot of experiences there, and uh, uh, it was really interesting. So I did uh, two years uh, active duty aboard ship and uh, lived on the ship the whole time that uh, I was on active duty. And um, my main goal was to do my two years and, and get out. Uh, I even remember having a, a short timers calendar on my, uh, on my bunk where you uh, could mark down the days when you were getting close to being uh, sent back home. So uh, yeah, I, I wasn't a professional sailor. Uh, I wasn't someone who uh, was looking at making this into a career, but what I was uh, doing was, you know, fulfilling um, my duty call and uh, uh, decided, uh, you know, went and I served and did the two years and wanted to get back home. Uh, I mentioned to, to Preston uh, some time back <clears throat> that um, I considered myself uh, an active draft dodger uh, in the sense that I didn't want to go in the Army. Uh, mm -hmm. So I guess the Navy was uh, my best choice. So uh, not really a draft dodger, but uh, I did avoid the draft. And I did. That's, uh, that's an interesting piece of, of whenever the draft is in place, though, is how many people have your story where maybe they would have gone into the military. Maybe they wouldn't have. But the draft kind of forced a decision that otherwise wouldn't have been there. 
it, I, I don't know how we'd ever measure that, but I'm sure it's a ton of people. Uh, uh, personally, I feel like there's a ton. That is kind of my question, Doug. Like, what do you, this is crystal ball thinking or hypothetical. How much did that draft and the war play into it? Cause it's like, it is on the one hand, you have your dad's experience. So you do, you grew up with it in a way in the family. And so you're gonna, that's gonna resonate with you, especially. I don't know what you were doing in high school, but if you didn't really have a plan or knew what you were doing, that's obviously an odd. It was always probably in front of you, I would imagine, as a kid. But at the same time, you growing up as a teenager, whatever, the Vietnam stuff happens. Um, how much of that played? Like if Vietnam, if there was no draft or Vietnam, what do you think would have happened? Just curious. Did you, do you still see yourself going there? Probably not. Um, uh, uh, I remember sitting in uh, one of my high school classes and um, the uh, teacher was asking the guys in the class, you know, well, you're coming up on graduation. And this was the year before I graduated. And uh, he was asking, you know, what are you going to do to these seniors uh, after you graduate? And uh, surprisingly, there were several of them that said, well, I think I'm just going to wait around for the draft. <clears throat> kind of see what's going to happen. And that was always in the back of your mind. Hmm. At least it was in mine. Um, I think uh, with several of my friends, uh, it was in the back of their minds too, as to whether or not they would get drafted. But, uh, you know, you're going to wait around. You're going to go to college. Uh, are you going to get married and try to utilize a deferment if you were to get drafted? <clears throat> All those things came to play. But the, the reality of it is, is that um, we didn't know. And uh, when I was in high school, I did four years of uh, metal shop, and I was really planning on becoming a welder. And uh, when I, uh, you know, so that was my focus. And that's one thing I thought about when uh, I joined the Navy is how do I get involved in uh, um, being a, a welder somewhere? But uh, before that, in high school, you had you had no idea. You don't know what you really want to do. Uh, you know, some of you guys uh, probably have a feeling that uh, you really wanted to go into the You really wanted to uh, excel, especially, you know, if you're going in as an officer, uh, you have a different, uh, a different mindset than uh, uh, a lot of us in the sense that uh, it could be a career for you. Uh, it could be a big step for you. And like with Preston, uh, uh, going to West Point, you know, it was a mandatory part of his uh, uh, West Point commitment. So, uh, but for me and for, you know, a lot of enlisted uh, men, uh, men and women, there really wasn't uh, much, I don't think a lot of thought as to uh, um, what I would be doing or where I'd be going from there. How did the anti, any, were the, was there any anti-war sentiment that played into, I mean, it was present. Did you have friends that were catching flack for that? Or were you concerned at all that people would be upset with you? No. I, uh, <clears throat> I grew up in a rural part of Michigan called the Thumb of Michigan. Uh, you know, Michigan's shaped like a mitten. And uh, so we were in on that little peninsula uh, called the Thumb. And a very conservative part of uh, Michigan. Um, <clears throat> most people, I would say, were... Uh, primarily in favor of uh, uh, going into the service and doing their time in the service. Um, you know, there wasn't protest in our high school or around us. Uh, the colleges that were further away from us, we were a long way from uh, uh, any larger cities or whatever that would have shown any kind of protest. And uh, so we really didn't have that kind of uh, anti-military, anti-war uh, uh, affect that was coming across to me when I was in high school. I didn't experience anything like that until I got into the service. And that's when you started to get out into the world and you started to see where uh, people didn't respect you very well. And uh, it was uh, really quite uh, disappointing. Uh, I remember one time I was uh, uh, on Liberty, and I was down in, at Waikiki when we were in port, and um, you know, you're 19, 20 years old, and so you're uh, uh, <clears throat> always looking to see if you could, you know, find a girl or something, and uh, I started talking with this uh, young lady, and uh, 
Of course, she knew that uh, I was uh, military because of my haircut. And uh, so she asked me uh, what branch I was in. I said the Navy. And she says, well, how many uh, babies did you kill while you were uh, uh, while you were, you know, doing going overseas? And it stopped the conversation right there. And, uh, uh, you know, so that was really my first real experience that, uh, boy, you know, that's really something to say to somebody. And uh, uh, and that certainly wasn't the point of uh, going into the military. Uh, But that was one experience that I vividly remember and uh, how people uh, were looking at the people involved in the the military. That's a tough thing to, to tackle emotionally for anybody. But I think we forget, or I forget, that a lot of times the people on the receiving end of that are 18 or 19 or 20. Um, that's got to be so just confusing and hard to process. I can't imagine. And I think it, it had to have flipped your world upside down because you are an 18, 19 year old, no nothing. You just know from your upbringing pretty much. And then the little microcosm of your high school and that small little window wherever you're living, especially back then when there wasn't obviously the internet and whatnot, to go from the stories of all of the adult males in your life, that generation there and what they did, the, your dad, your uncles, you know, your, your postman, all these people, the, the guy working at the bank. I mean, they were all involved in this very massive conflict that for the most part seemed like good versus evil. Wasn't a lot of that gray area that a lot of wars are. And then for you guys to be, it's just, and you were mentioning the draft. I find that interesting too, because we don't, I don't, I do think we talk about Vietnam in the sense that, the uh what you're talking about the baby killer type stuff the draft but just the impact what you were really talking about even people not drafted you as this generation of american primate you know males pretty much how this government our government um, really changed your lives in ways that we probably don't understand and again that even is someone who didn't even get drafted who just they had a draft number though and they you know, you're talking about these life planning things. People were getting married and having kids at 18, 19 back then, as compared to now, let's say they still are, but more common um, and getting houses and things like that. And you've just got this black cloud hanging over your head. I just, it, it's hard to imagine for someone who wasn't there. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> calling it a black cloud. <clears throat> now I wasn't depressed about the, the Vietnam war or depressed about the possibility of uh, going into the service or whatever, <clears throat> but there was that that cloud, that uh, that thought, at least for me, that was uh, you know hanging over our heads. Um, I remember back in the the seventh grade, uh, we had a math teacher, and uh, uh, he would talk about the Vietnam War up and down, and uh, you know he basically had uh, uh, several of us that was in his class scared scared that we were all going to go to a war we're all going to die and all this other thing and uh um you know that's not the the right thing to do for for uh, a kid and uh it's not the right thing to do when you look at uh, uh finally serving and then coming back and uh some of the comments that were made or even the lack of comments that were made thank you for your service um i tell you the truth that kind of bugs me because uh, uh, you, you never heard that 50 years ago. You never heard sure. that uh, when you came back. Well, you, you got uh, off active duty. You came uh, back home and uh, might as well have been uh, uh, people looking at you and saying, uh, well, where have you been for the last couple of years? And, uh, you know, so you don't talk about it. You, you feel as though what you were involved with was uh, certainly not appreciated. And um, it uh, was an experience that I guess was just mine. Uh, it wasn't anybody else's. So uh, thank you for your service. I think it's a nice comment right now. And, uh, but in the reality of it, uh, it's really kind of hollow when I think about it. Um, after I got out of the service, uh, I worked uh, in some metal shops for a short while. Then I went to college, went to college on the GI Bill. So I got out of uh, undergrad for <clears throat> with no debt. And uh, uh, there was a, you know, a good check that came every month. 
<clears throat> but uh, uh, went into, uh, got my undergrad degree. I was uh, in social work. <clears throat> but then uh, years later, when I was uh, about 45 years old, I heard the call to ministry. And uh, I ended up becoming a United Methodist pastor, uh, which I retired from. But one time uh, <clears throat> I was doing a Memorial Day service uh, uh, at a cemetery and I was asked to speak. And, uh, you know, I commented about, uh, uh, thank you for your service. And trying to bring uh, uh, the Vietnam era uh, veteran into the focus of uh, what does that really mean to you? Uh, when there was no thank you at all uh, when you got out uh, years ago. And so, I don't know, I just, I feel that is a, uh, you know, something that I, I hope people begin to understand uh, uh, about uh, what the service meant. And, and I was proud. I was proud to be in the Navy, uh, <clears throat> still am, and uh, uh, proud to be in the Navy. And uh, I, I don't have any regrets for um, the experience that I had. We, uh, we did a, a lot of uh, active uh, uh, bombardment when I was on our first Westpac in uh, 1972, we deployed from Pearl Harbor. I think it was in uh, January or February, and we uh, uh, we went to the, the Southeast Asia. And so we spent uh, uh, the cruise is about six months long, <clears throat> and we spent uh, uh, about uh, five months uh, out of those six months uh, at sea. We Doug, really didn't have this, uh, what, what kind of what kind of ship were you on? Can you add that? I was on a, a destroyer escort. Uh, it's not a large ship, <clears throat> has a crew of about 200 people. Uh, I looked it up uh, just to make myself clear uh, <clears throat> that uh, the size of it, it was four, 390 feet long and 44 feet wide. <clears throat> and um, it had a draft of 24 feet. As a ship goes, it was a big ship but it's not anything compared to a cruiser or to a, a carrier or anything like that. And uh, we had two uh, <clears throat> uh, major guns on it, five inch 38 uh, gun turrets and single uh, cannon uh, mounts. And uh, one was forward and one was at midships. And uh, we also uh, were uh, designed to be a anti-submarine warfare ship. And that uh, means that we had uh, a, a, a rocket launcher on there. I think it held uh, somewhere around uh, eight, uh, 16 missiles. And they would fire those up and down into the sea if they had a sighting of a submarine and uh, they are supposed to go down and seek it out and uh, uh, hopefully destroy it. But we never did any anti-submarine uh, sure. warfare when we were uh, in Southeast Asia. We were primarily on the uh, the gun line and uh, firing round after round after round <clears throat> into uh, uh, South Vietnam, and so uh, we uh, we did a uh, that first cruise. Uh, they put together what they called as a, a cruise book, and it has pictures of all the crew, pictures of some of the things that we were doing, and on the back, uh, the last page of it is it has. Uh, 14,600 rounds. That's how many rounds uh, uh, we fired when we were off the coast of Vietnam. And for two five-inch 38 uh, guns, that's, that's a lot of rounds, one at a time. How long of a period would that have been? A couple months? Uh, that would have been over uh, the six-month period. So Six months. Yeah. Wow. We had 14,000. Uh, 14, we were talking... Well, we were talking about how Preston and I are hard of hearing. How is your hearing then? Because that's more than us. Way more. Well, Way more. I do have a disability from the VA, and uh, part of it's from Agent Orange. And sure. then one of my uh, diagnoses was from uh, uh, some hearing uh, dysfunction. And it would have been from the guns because we didn't uh, wear any ear protection protection they didn't wear any ear protection in the gun mount and i was in the uh, upper handling room just below the the gun and uh so uh yeah it, it could be very loud and uh very constant you talk about your experience with uh 
um, around going off and uh, how you uh, couldn't hear for a little while. Uh, I had one of those experiences myself. I was in the upper handling room and uh, uh, the hatch to the main deck uh, blew open. It wasn't uh, secured uh, correctly. And so there we were with uh, the gun firing basically over that door and, uh, and just making all kinds of noise. So I took it upon myself to reach out and uh, grab the uh, the hatch to close it uh, before they fired any more rounds, but apparently they had one more to go. And so that cannon fired right over my head and basically knocked me back across the, the passageway. Uh, that could, that could kill you. That could kill you if you're close enough to it. And so yeah. when you say close enough, are you meaning kind of close to the muzzle to where it actually comes out? The blast? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, well, actually, uh, I would have been about maybe uh, five feet uh, away from the muzzle and maybe uh, eight feet below it. So I was That's what jacks you up. That is what jacked me up when I'm talking, when I was talking earlier about that, uh, whatever tank thing, I think it was because of the relationship to where it was coming out. I wasn't behind it far enough. It was like I was online with it. And that's, there is some, that's a whole different sort of concussion when you're sort of online to those things, I, from my experience at least. Like I said, it knocked me across the passage. Um, I did get up and shut the hatch, so uh, uh, that part was all secure, but uh, that was loud. And, uh, well, that's what happens. You try to do the right thing and you get in the wrong place at the right time. Were you, guys, were you guys firing pre-planned targets or were you waiting for radio calls from troops on the ground to try to support them? Well, what do you mean by pre-planned? You... Pre-planned is in you had them ahead of time and you're just going up to get in range. You'd fire the rounds and then get out of there versus waiting for somebody to call you and say, we're in, we need help and you're the closest asset. I think it's a mix of both. <clears throat> um, we were, there were a lot of spotter planes that were up <clears throat> and they would report and call in as far as what the mission would be. <clears throat> but there was also the uh, uh, being on the gun line, what they would do is uh, there would be like uh, maybe eight to 10 ships and they would form a circle and uh, the ships would go around and you come up along the shore and uh, you fire your rounds and then you come back out and the ship behind you comes in and they fire their rounds and keep going around and around. That would be more pre pre-planned because they're, uh, um, you know, engaged in uh, 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 some sort of uh, uh, bringing in uh, military or uh, soldiers from uh, that are out to sea. One time there was uh, an experience where there was, uh, there was a lot of helicopters. Uh, there was a helicopter ship uh, further out to sea and uh, we were going around and we were firing our rounds. <clears throat> I was uh, up on the forward lookout at that time. And so, uh, and again, you're not wearing any ear protection. You're just wearing a battle helmet. And um, they, uh, uh, we were firing our guns. All the other ships were firing their guns. There was smoke, there was cork, there was everything going all over the place. <clears throat> and then there would be a lull and then there would be this wave after wave of helicopters. And I think in 72, they were bringing in the South Vietnamese army and so they were having some sort of an inv invasion um, on shore at that time. And so that's kind of what we were involved with uh, quite often. And then there's other times when uh, we would be on station and um, we would get a call to a mission. And uh, uh, a lot of times in the middle of the night, uh, where we'd be firing um, round after round after round. Uh, in my compartment, um, where we where we slept and lived basically, uh, you could hear the hoist from the, the lower um, magazine, and if uh, it seems like on the mid watch twelve to four, there was always more activity going on then, uh, plus the the daytime uh, bombardments. But uh, uh, at night they they did a lot of it. But uh, you'd be laying in your rack, and if you had the mid mid watch you would uh, start hearing that hoist start to crank and you start saying, oh boy, it's going to be a busy night. So 
who uh, they were bringing up the, the shells and getting them all ready to, to do their next uh, firing mission. And that, uh, again, you know, you're not so fearful of uh, what's going on with the firing missions and also with the, the projectiles that you're handling. Um, but when we're in the, the upper handling room and trying to get all the projectiles ready to send up to the gun mount, we would always try to get a little bit further ahead because there were times when they wanted more and more and more and we were just waiting for that hoist to get up, bring up more uh, powder, more, uh, more projectiles. And they had these brackets around the, uh, the upper handling room that you're supposed to strap the, the shells in. We didn't even have time to strap them in. We were just stacking them, uh, setting them up on the, on the deck and, uh, and then they decided to, to make a turn. And so the ship would turn and all those projectiles, they just start rolling all over the place. And, and I guess there's, they didn't, they wouldn't detonate perhaps, uh, but uh, you know, we're grabbing these things and trying to get them in back in order. And then uh, they call for uh, 10 more rounds. And so we get 10 more of them up there and constantly all night long. <clears throat> and you had, uh, your sweat was just rolling off you like crazy. And, these ships, uh, you know, we uh, going back to Zach Morris talking about the LCIs in World War II, you know, they didn't have air conditioning. We did have air conditioning. Our ships oh, were air conditioned. Uh, nice. They were comfortable. But uh, when you're working like that, it's uh, still working. Work How heavy was around? And real quick, so were you an ammo bearer or um, loader? Yeah. Like, what was your job? I was uh, basically an ammo bearer below the, the gun mount. Uh, okay. I did a little climb up in the gun mount, uh, throwing the, you throw the shell in, uh, the, the powder uh, canister, and then the, uh, the shell in, and then the, 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 they'd fire from there. But my, most of my time was in the upper handling room, uh, uh, just below the gun mount. Got it. And how, yeah, how heavy were these rounds that you were always having to handle? Oh, well, have you handled a 5-inch 38 or? No, that's what I'm saying. No. <laughs> Clueless. What's that compared I, to on the artillery side? Like 105 millimeter? Even those rounds, like I, you know, I was infantry guy, so I just wasn't around big guns. They probably weigh 20, <clears throat> 20 pounds. Okay. Maybe 25. Sure. Uh, they weren't terribly heavy. And we just get up, get them up there and throw them in the hoist that goes up to the mountain. Uh, the canisters with the powder, that they were, those were light. <clears throat> but, um, uh, yeah, they're maybe 20 pounds. Sure. What was the uh, enemy threat that you had to be concerned about? Or were you? Was there anything that would keep you guys up at night when you were in these bombardment roles? We really <clears throat> didn't face any kind of uh, threat from uh, the Vietnamese. There was a concern about fishing boats. And uh, <clears throat> they didn't want any boats getting too close to you because you never knew what they were up to. Um, I didn't see it, but I heard a report of one fishing boat that got very close to our ship <clears throat> and they opened up on it with a 50 caliber machine gun. And that pretty well took care of that fishing boat. But um, as far as any threats, uh, uh, airstrikes or anything like that, uh, there were MiGs uh, in some of the areas, uh, but we really didn't face any kind of uh, shore bombardment coming towards us <clears throat> every once in a while there would be something that would happen and we'd have to get out of there and uh, the captain would uh, uh, start running a zigzag course to, to get out and uh, so we did get fired upon a little bit but nothing that we really had to be be worried about it was possible would have been shooting at you sorry who would have been shooting at you it would have been uh, uh, North Vietnamese well, like how, I guess, because I'm picturing this big metal thing out in the ocean. How are they, like, what are they shooting at you with? How are they getting even close enough to where this is a thing? They'd be some kind of, well, we'd be uh, probably within two or three miles of uh, shore. And so um, they would be firing uh, uh, some sort of a cannon from uh, infantry or uh, artillery from, uh, from shore. So... Mm. Uh, what they were, you know, I could never see them. I never saw any uh, any uh, activity that was uh, on shore because most of our rounds were going to go in about 15 miles. Right. And, uh, you know, so we were back there uh, 
15 miles away from where they were landing. Um, B-52 strikes, those were interesting because uh, uh, they would do uh, drop their uh, load of bombs and we would be sitting about three miles offshore and uh, the B-52s would be dropping their bombs somewhere around probably uh, 10, 15 miles inland. We didn't see the B-52s, we didn't see the bombardment, but we felt the concussion. Really? It was so strong that it shook our ship. Mm. You know, you're standing there and you just feel it rattling because of the, the amount of bombs that they were dropping uh, on Vietnam. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, I think it's... what it felt like they were in bunkers right mm -hmm. below it. And you felt yeah. it 15 miles out in an ocean. Yeah. I wondered how could anything uh, survive? But they've been at war for so long. They had all their trenches and their tunnels and everything. So they were all below ground. So I, I don't know how much damage we were really doing uh, with all of that bombardment. The, this was a phase where we were starting to withdraw troops from the ground, from within Vietnam. Is that correct? Yeah. 71, 72? Yeah. Uh, most of the Army and the Marines were <clears throat> pulling out. But uh, the South Vietnamese were still very active. And uh, I was reading uh, one of the Time Life books about uh, what was happening during 1972. Probably uh, <clears throat> what it was reported in that, uh, in that book was that it was probably some of the most vicious fighting that was going on. But it was the South Vietnamese fighting the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese uh, uh, in their homeland. So we didn't... Uh, deal a lot with uh, the, the U.S. Army or the Marines. There was one time uh, I was on the motorboat uh, crew and uh, we went ashore. We had to pick up a Marine and bring him back to our ship for some reason or whatever, but we didn't face any, uh, any fire from that or whatever. It, uh, although I think uh, the uh, Lieutenant JG that was aboard our motor well boat was more nervous about everything than any of the rest of us. <clears throat> he was standing there with his gun and he was ready to shoot. To take him on. He was taking him on. But you, yeah, men you mentioned Agent Orange earlier. I don't normally think about that with the Navy. I think of it with the soldiers on the ground, soldiers and Marines, or maybe even the Air Force that's dropping it overhead. But how does that tie in with, with the Navy? Well... <clears throat> I uh, sat on a jury trial one time, and it was about one farmer who was spraying his field with herbicide, <clears throat> but his neighbor's farm got sprayed by the herbicide, and uh, so it ruined part of his crop. It's, it's what they called drift, and what they finally determined is that, yes, uh, the Agent Orange was dropped on the uh, on the jungles of South Vietnam, but uh, they didn't take into consideration also that there was drift that took place and apparently drift had come out across the, into the sea. <clears throat> so when you, if you were uh, uh, within a certain range of uh, the shore, they determined that uh, you were probably affected by Agent Orange if you developed uh, certain conditions and uh, one thing I developed was uh, diabetes, and uh, my doctor at the VA said, you ought to file a claim about that because they're, they're looking at the Navy uh, as being uh, recipients for uh, disability for Agent Orange. So I didn't think much about it, but I, I filed the claim, and lo and behold, I, I got a disability uh, out of the whole thing. That, that so, had to have been just a shocking amount of Agent Orange, which is a, a, a pesticide. Um, a defoliant, I'm sorry, it's a defoliant that, that killed much of the vegetation for anybody listening, but think about how much had to have been used for the military to recognize that it's drifting out miles across the ocean. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I think that's the motto of the military. Uh, if uh, a little is good enough, well, more can be a lot better. <clears throat> so they probably uh, used a lot more than maybe what they needed to do. I don't know. But uh, the thing is, is that we uh, uh, we were exposed and, uh, you know, so we'll see what happens. <clears throat> and the one thing that I'm uh, concerned about with you guys are those burn pits that you were involved with, with uh, in Afghanistan. So <clears throat> that could be the next Agent Orange. I think it'll, it, I think that'll be our version. Yeah, it is. Ho ho hopefully Different not degrees. as bad. Yeah, exactly. Like. 
I don't think it was as bad in general as what Vietnam was, right? Just from all things considered. And Vietnam wasn't as bad as what whatever your dad had to do in the Pacific theater, which yeah. was nuts. And that's all progress, but they all have their issues. That's for sure. There's lots of, yeah. well, unknown hazards. You know, it's like you're going there. It's like, well, I'm kind of expecting to get blown up or shot at, at a minimum. Whether it hits me, it's a little different. But to think like all this other long nagging cancers and things like that accumulate as a result. You're just not thinking that way back when you were saying when you're 19, 20, whatever you are, kind of invincible, um, not really thinking about the future in ways that you might think of it later as you get older and more mature. I mean, brains aren't even fully developed to your 25. So, I mean, yeah. we're a little crazy going into those things. Yeah. Did you? So that, at least there, at, at identifying it and uh, doing something uh, uh, to compensate us for. So, <clears throat> I guess. Uh, you know that uh, that's a, a a positive. What's uh what did it look like when you either moved into the reserve or even after you got out of the service in terms of connection with your shipmates from those West Packs? Did you guys stay in touch? Are there a couple folks you stayed in touch with? Um, anything like that? Uh, somebody developed a uh, Facebook page for uh, the USS Sample, and. Um, so I can connect with them. They do some reunions. Um, I haven't gone to any. And uh, so I really haven't stayed in contact uh, with uh, many of my shipmates or whatever. Another thing that I wanted to touch base with you on is uh, one of the things that we, were, we did in 1972 was uh, our ship was involved with uh, uh, the mining of Haiphong Harbor. So one of my... Uh, claim to fame, I guess, is that uh, uh, I was probably further north uh, in North Vietnam than, than most people, but uh, uh, at least I wasn't uh, held prisoner or whatever. But uh, at that time, uh, President Nixon uh, was trying to up the ante with uh, the North Vietnamese, and he was working towards uh, <clears throat> freeing the, the POWs. And so one of the stressors to put on them was to mine the Haiphong Harbor. And so our ship was involved with that. So uh, we didn't fire uh, at that time, but uh, there was a lot of uh, bombardment that did go on and uh, they did the mining. And uh, so when we were ready to, to leave, uh, I crawled out uh, one of the hatches on the main deck and uh, peeked my head up there because I wanted to see North Vietnam. And so I, I did see it and uh, uh, we were starting to steam out of there and uh, be on our way. What did it look like? Look like South Vietnam? It looked like, uh, yeah, that <laughs> <laughs> we would see uh, on land from uh, a couple miles at sea. But, uh, but we still were, an experience. You knew what you were seeing and you, as you soaked it in, which is kind of you could appreciate what you were doing at that time, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there was uh, there were megs and things. We were at general quarters. Uh, and so uh, there was the threat there, but uh, I mean, there were several cruisers there and uh, 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 just a lot of ships that were involved in all that and uh, aircraft carriers that uh, were, were sending uh, planes over. So yeah, that was a, a pretty uh, kind of an exciting uh, experience to, to take place there. Maybe this so, would have been that time, but did you ever have an experience in the Navy where you're able to look out over the ship? and see a bunch of other U.S. Navy ships. To me, that's always like the, the coolest scene in movies when they recreate it, when somebody looks out and sees just the vast expanse of the U.S. Navy. Is that realistic? Did you get to see that? Not to that degree. <clears throat> you know, you look at D-Day, you know, that would have been impressive to see all those ships out there. But when we headed over on our first task force, there was uh, um, uh, about... 10 or 12 of us that all went together. Mm -hmm. So we're in that formation and uh, we did maneuvers and everything while we were uh, heading across the Pacific and everything. So that was pr uh, impressive to see all the other yeah. ships and everything. And working with an aircraft carrier, that was always impressive. Um, we uh, several times refueled from an aircraft carrier. So they come up alongside and they, they run a hose across and uh, they plug it into your uh, your valve there on the main deck, and uh, they pump you full of uh, uh, the fuel to uh, so you can keep on going. 
I think that speaks to how big aircraft carriers are. Yeah. It's, yeah. Impressive. Even the refueling, like you're talking about, I don't even know how you go about refueling the aircraft carrier then from that point. Yeah. It's exactly. just you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And they're out to see it for a long time. Well, yeah. there's oils out there too. Uh, <clears throat> tanker ships that uh, are always filled with, uh, with uh, the fuel for your boilers. And so they would go back and forth from, uh, uh, from ports to uh, refuel themselves, and then they would come out and they would refuel, refuel uh, other ships, and uh, they probably were refueling the uh, the carriers as well, with the various jet fuels as well as uh, uh, the, the operational fuel. I think it was when, JP. When your term of service is up in that in that experience there, because everybody on that ship would not have gotten out of the service on the same date. So do you cycle back one at a time or do you wait until they come back? Or what does that look like? Pretty much one at a time. Um, when I got off ship, uh, I got off with uh, five other guys. <clears throat> they were not all in this, my same division. And so uh, uh, we were transferred. And that's another interesting thing about being at sea. Uh, we didn't walk off the ship. We transferred the same way you refuel. They run a line across to another ship. And they get uh, put you in on an aluminum basket with a little teeny uh, flotation collar around it, <clears throat> and they send you across. And so uh, that's uh, going across on the High Line. And so you go from your ship over to the, the next ship. And so that's how I got off my ship. Leave it and, in style. Yeah. And yeah, you were a replacement in a way that just everybody was in Vietnam, right? Just the guys like fall into a platoon as individuals. And it sounds like what mm -hmm. you did just when you're talking about taking notes or uh, ticking the days away. Those were your individual days, not the unit's days. Is exactly. that right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Boy, that's different too. That's a whole other thing with Vietnam and mm -hmm. that affects things. Again, I think we at least got to train up together you know, and we all come back together and everybody scatters after that for the most part, but not everybody, but we were a cohesive unit that deployed world war yeah. two cohesive units that deployed. Didn't even know when they were coming back. You did. Yeah. And we did. So they were all had their own nuances, but that individual thing that is unique. Yep. You got your orders one day and uh, you were going to be leaving in a couple hours. So get your sea bag ready and uh, head out. And I knew it was coming, but I didn't know when. <clears throat> so my sea bag was ready. So I, I knew that I would be getting off uh, sometime within the next uh, week or two. So just waited. Then back to Pearl Harbor, to the West Coast, and back well, to Michigan? Back, uh, I went uh, from uh, being transferred to that uh, oiler. We went uh, to Subic Bay in the Philippines, up to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, flew to... Uh, uh, Japan, and I think we landed in Tokyo, and then we went to Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, did a layover there, and then we came down to Travis Air Force Base and uh, mustered out uh, at uh, Treasure Island uh, in San Francisco Bay. That's so, not the route I would have expected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, uh, you know, it's, it's funny how, well, it's the same way you went in and the same way you came out. I uh, deployed... <clears throat> from uh, Treasure Island. And I was the only one uh, uh, that was uh, going to my ship. And I don't think there were very few, very many other uh, sailors that were on the, the flight that sent us over there. So, hmm. no, you kind of were individual, so. Interesting, yeah. So. It's, um, it's, well, you came home as an individual too. It's not only that you served as an individual, you came home as an individual. Yeah, you know, back to your community and all that stuff, like what you're talking about earlier, having yeah. to explain your absence. I feel like what you're describing is almost like a prison sentence. You know, you, yeah. you just got out. You don't want to tell people where you were for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because you just really didn't talk about it. And uh, <clears throat> you didn't think anybody was really that interested uh, because nobody would ask you questions about it. They were going about their own business, uh, doing their own thing. <clears throat> so I sure. guess I well, what was going to be my own thing? And, uh, but I think that could be, uh, I think a lot of uh, Vietnam veterans feel the same way. My brother-in-law, he was uh, Army, and uh, he was in South Vietnam. And uh, just, uh, he was uh, down here visiting with us uh, oh, a month or so ago. 
and we started talking about uh, this stuff. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, nobody, uh, nobody paid any attention to him either. You know, you just happened to come back and, uh, and you were done. And uh, there was no, uh, no feeling of uh, what you were doing was really of any value. And especially with the protests that go on. Sure. Uh, Did you have so, these conversations with your brother-in-law over the years, or is this more a more recent thing that you were discussing? Well, and I think it's because of you guys, because um, what you're doing here is, uh, I think, a really good service for us to uh, to hear everybody talk about uh, uh, military experiences and what had uh, taken place during your time in the service. And uh, I think what you're doing is you're solidifying a lot of veterans into an understanding that, wow, there really is some interest out there. And uh, uh, not that we want to brag about it, but uh, the thing of it is, is it's nice to tell your story. And uh, Preston and I have had uh, uh, some conversations and I really appreciate him as far as uh, what he has done uh, with West Point and all that. and. And, uh, you know, your uh, involvement with uh, uh, ROTC and uh, serving your time, uh, I appreciate what, what you guys have done, but I really appreciate, too, what you're doing now. And I hope uh, people are beginning to, to gravitate to that and understand. That, was, uh, that works as a paid advertisement. So. Well, good. Yeah, no, yeah, we, I, I mean, we appreciate that. Yeah, it's very course. nice. I mean, that's, that's the feedback that what means you know the most to us but i can only speak for myself as a kid of the 90s basically growing up i do think that while you guys never got that from your cohort cohort group let's say your peers growing up with the society that you were in um i regardless of even how the outcome of vietnam turned out and now afghanistan and iraq I still think that the hard lessons that you guys learned were still passed down to us in ways that mattered. Mm -hmm. And, and we're and we still, we have, we have our hard lessons to pass down too for whatever the next thing is. Cause we didn't do it. Afghanistan is not a win in my book. Mm -hmm. um, and there's mm -hmm. certainly some Vietnam parallels, but mm -hmm. I still don't think it's the same though. It's not the same as what you guys. And I think that that's in a good way in a sense that you guys had, to suffer through things that we didn't necessarily have to suffer through. Mm -hmm. And that sort of paves the ways to all those energies and the efforts that you, you had to go through were not meaningless, were not pointless. That's where thank you for your service comes in because I will take, and I view it as thank you for your service, comma, I guess. That's how mm -hmm. I kind of view it. But mm -hmm. that is still better than being spit on and um, the baby killers. It'd be one thing if the people thought that and said, thank you for your service. But I don't think people think that we were baby killers over there. I do think that contextually, they know that bad things happen on in war zones and innocents do get hurt. But I don't think that they, my impression at least of our, the judgment of us isn't that sort of attitude. And I think a large part of that is the healing and the observation of the BS of how the Vietnam veterans were treated just completely mm -hmm. despicable. Um, me growing up with those stories, just as a child, I, I watched them, you know, you guys are older men, you were my uncle and stuff. And I watched that crap. Yeah, it really bothered me. Yeah. Well, at least, you know, we are uh, uh, able to voice it now. And uh, we're uh, not in a, uh, I told you so, or in a bad way. But uh, yeah, here's our story. Uh, whether you like it or not, <clears throat> this is our story, and we will. Uh, uh, I'll live with uh, what my my history has been, and again, it's an experience that uh, I don't want to do again. But I'm sure glad that I did. Uh, it was just uh, life at sea is so so different, you know, of course. <clears throat> but uh, to see some of the things that uh, you can see and how. Uh, uh, you did things while you were at sea, uh, how you replenished at sea, how you, like I said, got gas while you were at sea. And uh, we went through two typhoons. And what do you do there? You hang on and you don't go out on the main deck. But uh, you learn to uh, just those experiences that were just fantastic. Uh, but when you're 19, 20 years old, 
they were uh, uh, really a lot of fun in a, in a real sense. I remember one time I was on the aft lookout and uh, we were heading due west and I was on the, uh, the, 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 the first dog, the, we have two watches in the morning, the uh, uh, four to six and the six to eight. And I was on the four to six watch uh, <clears throat> on the fantail of the ship. And I was just looking out straight out and all of a sudden the sky started to get bright red. And then uh, I started to watch as uh, I was seeing the sun come up directly in our wake. It was just coming up perfectly right in our wake. And it was one of the most beautiful sights to see that sunrise, one that I will never, never forget. And uh, to be out there, nothing around you, nothing within miles, and you're sitting out there and you've got that all to yourself. Those are some moments that are, that are really uh, cherishable. And uh, I, I really appreciated doing that. I, I loved uh, standing watch on the bridge. I loved, uh, here I am 19 years old and I'm driving this ship, uh, standing a watch on the helm. And uh, I was a pretty good helmsman. I kept it on course really well. And uh, even had a compliment from uh, uh, one of the officers of the deck uh, saying, well, you, you're keeping it on course really well. And so, you know, that was uh, something that I, you just get the knack for, you get the, the hang of it. So uh, it was, uh, it was fun. A lot of those good experiences. They're a great like responsibility it. at a young age, you know, being yeah. able to drive a ship, you know, that you just, there's no civilian jobs that they would have allowed that. You're not ready yet. You're not old enough yeah. yet. You're not responsible enough, but the military kind of, they, they'll give you the training for it and say, well, you yeah. are responsible enough for it. And, you know, here are the keys. Now we're watching, but you're driving mm -hmm. and it's up to you to not screw up because they're expecting you to do a good job and to focus on whatever it is at hand. And it all matters and it all, it's a, it's a piece to a larger um, whole. And those are perspectives you gain that you never would have seen uh, growing up in small town, Michigan, USA. And I think regardless of the war part or the fighting or bombs and cannons, it's just the, the perspective obtained at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And there's great benefit to that. But I also sometimes think that there's some, there's a negative to it too, right? Because your eyes are open to ways that other people's eyes aren't necessarily opened. Yeah. Um, but to something, it's a cross you got to bear, I feel like. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And you do, you uh, do it as best you can. And, uh, you know, you look at uh, camaraderie and support. One time we, uh, we lost the load. Our, our boilers went down. And so, and we were off the coast of Vietnam. And uh, um, so they were working uh, to get the, the ship running. You know, those things are magnificent machines. There we were six months at sea and we, uh, you know, we, we never, the only time we uh, shut down <clears throat> was when we were in port. So we were out there and uh, the boilers quit and we were dead in the water. <clears throat> so uh, we were working and working and they were working to get it, uh, to get it running. But within about 15 minutes, there was uh, uh, a couple of destroyers, uh, a couple of cruisers, and uh, there, were, uh, there was another ship that was coming up around us and they surrounded us, especially the cruisers, because you're a sitting duck out there. And uh, if there were MiGs that were in the area, what a better target than, than the sure, sure. ship that's not gonna be able to do much. And, uh, uh, lo and behold, they, they just showed up on the horizon. I, you, you couldn't believe your eyes. Um, we actually uh, got the, <clears throat> the line across from one of the destroyers because they were going to have to tow us. But as we got uh, tied up, they got the boilers running. And so we let go and uh, we went off and sailed for another day. So it was, uh, those are just impressive things about how they come together. You know, Preston talking about uh, uh, the book tribe, you know, that's part of the tribe part of yeah. it. And, yeah. Uh, how uh, we can, if we can only be more cohesive outside of those uh, danger zones, outside of those uh, times when we're uh, working, trying to work together and bring it back into our, our lives uh, back home 
and how can we work together and not uh, not argue and fight all the time? You know what I think is cool about that that boiler going down story is you probably don't know anybody on those other ships that came to assist you. And I'm right. guessing there's probably people that were on those other ships that are telling that exact same story from the other point of view. You know, that we, you know, we went as fast as we could and got right between them and the shoreline. And, and it's all people that don't know each other and maybe have crossed paths later in life, probably haven't. Um, but it doesn't matter. I think that's really cool. Well, the ship that tied up to us uh, was the USS Hamner. Uh, DD 718. So if anybody's out there, that's uh, thank you a lot. We're yeah, there we go. Receive your uh, your toe. Send yeah, us a note. Is. We'll get we'll get you in touch. That would be yeah. awesome if so. Wouldn't that be? Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Well, I so, think that's a good note to wrap up on here. So, Doug, thank you so much for for sharing all this. I you'd said earlier that um, for a period it felt like folks weren't interested. And what you guys had done, you guys, your your generation, your fellow veterans, and I think there are a lot that are very, very interested. Um, maybe it was just some loud voices at the time, but I love hearing these stories. I, I think Sayer does. I know Sayer does, and I'm I'm certain we're going to get a lot of uh, feedback from folks who are very interested in this as well. Yeah, well, I hope you do, and uh, <clears throat> keep doing what you're doing, and uh, thank you for your service. Hey, there we go. Sounds good. Welcome well, home. Uh, no, thank you. Yeah. Hey, if you've got an extra 16 seconds, it would really mean a lot to me if you left a review for War Stories. I read every single one of those, and we'll do our best in coming episodes to maybe shout some of those out just as a way of saying thank you for taking the time. But either way, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.